I'm uh, Sherry Falkenheimer. Sorry uh, to be running a little late. I was talking to some people down at our booth. Uh, thank you all for coming. I know it's really late in the conference. And uh, how many of you are involved in teaching yourselves? Any of you? Are? Oh, good. And uh, how many of you would like to be teachers? Any, any more? Oh, good. Well, I think you heard from uh, Dr. White. Do you know how to get this up? But it's something we have to push on here. I thought it was alternative eight, but it's not. It seemed to work. Have ten? Oh, that's coming? Oh, good. Thanks. Well, as you've heard from Dr. White and some others, uh, there's a tremendous need for health teaching, not only in America, but in many countries. And it can be a way to really multiply uh, our effectiveness. Uh, for example, uh, a group in Kenya invited uh, uh, small groups of people to come and teach with them in advanced life support. It was actually the Kenyan Christian Medical Fellowship. And through a partnership with five small teams going there over five years and teaching advanced life support subjects and then training the best students to be teachers of those uh, programs, the Kenyans have now trained over 1,500 uh, medical people in three different cities in Kenya, and it's becoming the standard of care in the uh, Nairobi hospitals to get this training, even to the extent that the Muslim hospital is uh, sending its people to the course. So just, I think, a good example of uh, what we want to do is, just like Jesus told us to make disciples so they can pass on the gospel, we don't want to always be people who have to be uh, on-site doing the training, we want to equip our brothers and sisters and then have them equip other people. And the Kenyan Christian Medical Fellowships now hoping to go to Tanzania and Ethiopia and some other places and do the training. So I think that's the, the kind of example you can get in medical teaching. So I'd really encourage you all. There are lots of opportunities to do clinical care on teams, and that's certainly needed. There are a lot of places there aren't any medical people but if you like to teach, also let you know that there are a lot of opportunities to teach what you teach every day, where you are, and equip people. And what I wanted to do was talk a little bit about training to be a teacher. It always was amazing to me that uh, you have to have all these certifications if you're going to teach kindergarten up through 12th grade. But above that, there's no requirement that you get any training to be a teacher to teach college or uh, medical school, some are starting to have it now, but, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive that the higher you go, the less you need to know how to teach. And teaching adults is quite different than children, too. So that's what I'd like to talk about today. And uh, let me get this to... I always have trouble with the technological things. Let me get it to go to the next slide. I don't know if it's just slow or what. Well, anyway, let's just skip it if it's not working well. Uh, what I wanted to do was talk a little bit about uh, the pattern that has developed in a number of countries and then uh, what we can do to try to change it to, to an extent to make it more effective. Uh, in some countries where we go to teach, lecture is the primary method. Are, how many of you are at schools that you mainly use lecture now? So there's still a few of those. I th thought it was changing more in North America, but maybe not. But, uh, you know, in some countries, people who are going to medical school sit in lectures throughout their 
basic science time. Then when they do their clinical, they go on the wards and follow somebody around and the professor examines the patient and says, oh, well, this is obviously these symptoms, give this medicine, and then they go to the next patient. And uh, when someone goes and asks the person, well, why did they give that medicine? They don't know because they've just heard these lectures. So there are a lot of disadvantages to, to using a lecture regularly. Anybody ever fallen asleep in a lecture? <laughs> okay. So I'm not going to lecture most of the time. I know you probably expected that, but uh, it would be kind of hypocritical to talk about how lecture isn't always the best method and then just lecture to you all. So I'd like to do this interactively, and you're already somewhat broken into little groupings. If you can try to sit in groups of about five, uh, I'd like to talk, first of all, about why interactive teaching methods are more effective. So um, take uh, little groups of five and take about three or four minutes and try to think of different reasons you can why interactive methods would be best, and we can uh, then get back together. Okay, so go ahead. and going to put you to work today. and get this to go. I don't know why it's not paging down. Oh, thank you. Just use that one. If I believe in grammar, I think uh, computers knew it. There is just this one. Oh, okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. You can just join one of the small groups. They're considering uh, why interactive teaching methods may be better than just using lectures. Okay, why don't we come back together? We won't uh, have as much time as would be nice for the questions, but hopefully you get a chance. If each group can come up with a couple of things, we'll come out with quite a bit. So over here, what did you come out with as far as uh, why using interactive methods may be more effective in medical teaching? Right. There's lots of uh, people who aren't so good at just abstract intellectual talk, and you can really participate in a lot of different respects. Good. Any? What? What's one of the ones y'all came up with? Well, it keeps you engaged because you're Yeah, it's a little harder to fall asleep when you're in an interactive <laughs> session, which I know it's the end of the conference, so that's another reason to do that. How about over here? Any other reasons you came up with? Okay. Yeah, sorry. Uh, it's such a short time, and I, I wanted to cover quite a bit, so we don't get as much time to get to know each other as we'd like. How about up in here? Oh, 
Okay, so there are advantages from the instructor point of view in knowing what people are getting or know or don't know and uh, making sure they're understanding it by the time you finish. How about anybody down here? Yeah, that's an important part. It's easy to go to lecture and not have done anything, but if you know you're going to be called on or you're going to have to interact, peer pressure is great, and uh, if it affects your grade, sometimes that too. How <laughs> about up in here? Any other ideas? Yes. Uh, the instructor has the ability to then see what areas to teach in terms of troubleshooting, like a procedure or an essay. Right, and it's, you know, it's not so easy to teach a procedure by lecture, right? <laughs> it's uh, something that they have to do so you can see how they're doing it. Um, any other things you wanted to add to why you use them? There are many reasons why it's good to use interactive methods. And now, what kind of interactive methods are you all aware of? What's being used where you're teaching or where you're studying? Yes? We have uh, case studies and discussion groups. Okay, case studies are real common in medical and dental type things, but also other fields. There's the pimping, the pimping aspect of the going down the line, ask the question to each student. Okay. <laughs> yeah, what do you think of that method? Is that a real effective method? It's very effective in getting you to do your free work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of puts you on the spot. But in Christian teaching methods, maybe not the best way. Yeah, I, I know I was very uh, surprised or disappointed, I guess I would say, when I went into medicine. I thought it would be a very, you know, loving mentorship. And <laughs> you all know if you've been <laughs> pimped on rounds and things, it's not always that way. But we can, we can try to change that. So any other ideas? We always get more from the group than we'd come up with alone. Any, what other methods can we use besides case studies? Yes. Okay. And now we're having more of the uh, standardized patient type things, too, and actually testing that way. Yes, did you have one? Uh, yeah, I was going to Okay. Anything else? Yes, Problem Jim? Problem-based learning. How many of y'all are doing that? Really? Oh, I'm surprised. I thought just about all the medical schools were using it now. It's where uh, you're in a group. I'll talk about it in a little bit, or we will. And uh, it's basically where you get in a group. Well, why don't you talk about it, Jim? You're aware of it, right? You brought it up. What's problem-based learning? Well, you, you might come up with a, with a, with a circumstance. Um, a child comes in with asthma, so a child comes in with asthma. How are you going to approach this? How are you going to see this in the context of a larger picture? And it's not necessarily just this one piece. But then looking at it from different angles. Okay, it can be a, a clinical problem. It can be, a, you know, a topic in basic science, but... The basic thing is it's not something you're lectured at. It's presented as a problem, and you have to, in the group, you have to research it. What's the role of the student and instructor in problem-based learning? Do you, have you done it? you want to talk about that? Or? I don't want to put you on the spot too much. <laughs> no, I think it, instead of the instructor, the, the lecture model, the instructor has all the information and everybody else. When I was in medical school, the, the worst case was, where the 
the surgeon didn't want to do the lecture, so he sent a tape recorder. <laughs> That's the worst I've heard. So the next day, the student sent a tape recorder to sit next to the teacher's one.Obie showed up. That's the ultimate failure of the lecture method. Not to mention no one going to class except one person to take notes. So in this case, the teacher asks questions and then guides the discussion by saying these are some questions and then helps the students become much more active learners. They find it for themselves as more effective. Okay, that's a method called guided discussion. We'll talk a little about that. Yes. Not students now have an iPod, so um, you, you may lecture a little bit, you put a multiple choice, maybe several questions up, and, if, and then they have the choice to answer the correct answer. And if you have, say, 80% or so get it, you know they've gotten the concept. If less than that get it, then where it becomes interactive is you have the students who got the answer correct teach to those who didn't. And it's, it's very effective in being able to get down to beginner's level so they really understand what's going on. And you're engaging the people who did their homework or already know something. You know, if you've all probably been in a class where you already knew the material, it was pretty boring because you were just sitting there and people who didn't know it. And you learn a lot more by teaching. See one, do one, teach one. Did you have something? Yes, but I think there's still a place for lecture, especially the example you mentioned about the surgery. The surgeon doesn't have a lot of time during the surgery to explain to him taking a lot of time Yeah, there's still a place for it. Yes, and I don't mean to say there's... Right. There's no place. And if you all have taken advanced life support courses and things, you know there's some lecture, but that's just to get you started. Uh, it's not the whole course. Where in some medical schools, I mean, literally, you graduate and you've basically been lectured to the whole time and you're supposed to go out and take care of patients. It's pretty scary. So those are some of the methods. We'll talk about some other ones. Uh, all of them, all of the interactive methods for the most part incorporate the use of questions. And uh, this isn't part of the CME part of the presentation, but as believers, uh, I think we can learn a lot from Jesus' model uh, of teaching as a great teacher. And he used questions a great deal. So go in your little groups for uh, about, I'll give you about five minutes or so, and think about some of the times Jesus used questions and try to think about what his purpose was in using them. <coughs> try to come up with his purposes. We don't talk about this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's. Uh, come back together. <laughs> Let's start on this side this time. What's uh, one reason Jesus used questions from the, this group? I'll go for it. Um, make them teachable. Okay, in what way? Make them teachable? Um, he would introduce new concepts like Nicodemus. He wasn't actually asking a question, but he introduced the concept of being born again, and that was never in the Old Testament. So okay. Okay, shows that he's the teacher by bringing up new concepts. I'm just repeating for the tape. Uh, how about up in here? Um, we had quite a few. Um, first of all, the 
Well, give me the reason he's using them. Right. What he's trying to achieve with each. Because he uses them in many different ways. Okay, so he uses them for people to have a chance to express their faith or say what they believe. Good, like Peter. Yes. Okay. Okay, so questions provoke self-examination and seeing whether you really understand what's being discussed, if you can articulate it. Anything else on this side? How about in the middle? Anybody? Yes. Uh, finding out what people want. Okay. What would be an example? Well, the, I think Bartimaeus and Jesus said, call him over here and what do you want? I want to see. Okay. Find out what people think. Mm-hmm. Like he said to his disciples, who do, who do people say that I am? And then followed it up and said, who do you think I am or say that I am? Okay, great. Yeah, those are good examples to uh, help people to think about what they, they believe and uh, say it and uh, make them examine their beliefs. Anything here? What is in people's hearts? You want to find out what is actually their heart, and uh, with that they can articulate that verbally in response to his questions, and that way he can determine whether they are really understanding his whole mission, his own purpose, and that they are ready to roll with him. Okay, finding out what's in people's hearts, and you know we all know Jesus knew it was in people's hearts, so if he asked it, he must have had a good reason. But we can't read people like that, so. We need to ask them to be able to evaluate, both give them a chance to evaluate, but also get an idea where they are. Anything over in the side? I heard you all saying you do this in Bible study all the time. So should I have a couple examples? Or? Um, What's that? I guess one of the things we were talking about, how the Pharisees were, they were asking questions, and then Jesus would ask questions back uh, with regard to um, the Sabbath. Kind of a, you know that you know he's Jesus is potentially in conflict with what their opinion is, and just pointing out a less intimidating way to engage people is to ask a question instead of making a statement. It's a more peaceful way because uh, he already knows the answer. He knows how it should be, but by asking a question instead of making a statement, you're less intimidating and you open that person up for discussion and engage them more than a statement. Okay, so it's uh, a little less confrontational a lot of times, but it can achieve the same purpose in controversy. And have you heard John Patrick speak? He talks about this a lot, about the importance of using questions, uh, especially in controversial issues to, uh, you know, like when uh, the, the Pharisees would ask Jesus something and he would say, or especially say, well, what was John the Baptist from God or was he from man? And they they didn't want to deal with that, so that kind of disarmed the conflict there a little bit. Okay, there are a lot of reasons, and we don't have time to 
go into the mall. Uh, I think we dealt with quite a few of these. Uh, somebody was talking about Peter, you know, that is kind of an appeal to his conscience. Do you love me? After he denied him three times. Uh, bringing faith, we talked about that. Even making a point of contact when the, you know, the woman uh, with the bleeding touched him and got well. She would have been totally hidden, but Jesus said, well, who touched me? You know, there are just a lot of different reasons. It can help clarify the errors and things we talked about, keep people involved. So I think we covered a a lot of these, uh, help people see what they believe. In education, it has all these same benefits. And it's actually interesting because truth is truth. If you study education theory, I'm I'm doing uh, some study in that right now, uh, there's been a lot discovered scientifically you can use, too, to uh, bring up the kinds of benefits of using questions and interactive techniques. And these are some of the things that have been found. Uh, not only does it keep people awake, but you actually learn more. It engages you and makes some uh, tracks in your brain more and more as we're understanding the theory of uh, the physiology of learning. Uh, it's important even in helping you physiologically establish memories and uh, learn things. And uh, one term that's used a lot in educational theory is called the disorienting dilemma. And Jesus was the master of this. It's really disarming people by bringing up something that causes them to re-examine their values or their thoughts or uh, their teachings and, uh, you know, think about why do they believe that? Is that the right way to go? And it can be uh, a lot more uh, peaceful, like you were saying. Uh, you can't not deal with a question, even if they don't answer it verbally. There's some reaction of the person. Uh, as people are engaging, they have ownership. Uh, you get a lot of perspectives like we're getting from y'all. And uh, a lot of times people have ideas and solutions we wouldn't have thought of. I wasn't familiar with the technique you had mentioned about the using the iPods. But as you see, I'm kind of technologically challenged in the baby boomer generation. So I always say I need to rent a teenager. <laughs> um, uh, it can change people's biases, you know, as, uh, as they think about these things. They may be unconscious. Uh, I was in Mongolia one time, and a colleague was teaching medical ethics, and uh, he was saying, well, you know, uh, he gave bad examples from America like Tuskegee and uh, Willowbrook, and if you, you know what, the history of bioethics have been a lot of things done here unethically because he didn't want to make it on any other country. But then he'd say, well, how would you approach this from a Buddhist worldview? How would you approach this from, a, you know, a scientific worldview, a Christian worldview? And then he ended by saying, what would you want the doctor to do if it was your mother or your daughter or your son? You know, and that's a very different question than what you think intellectually, and that can cause you to say, you know, what I'm doing, is this really what I would want done? So I think it can be really effective, and especially if you want to teach cross-culturally, uh, it can be really effective because we don't often, usually don't really understand their worldview fully, certainly not as deeply as they do, and if we can challenge them to make the connections and uh, put together the uh, ideas, it can be something that applies within their culture, where if we lecture, it may be totally inapplicable in their culture and not practical or uh, just something that won't work. So I think we talked most of these. I'd do more of this interactively if we had more time, but I don't want to keep you late. Uh, There are some changes from instructors, if you're an instructor in this, though. (laughs) 
One reason I think a lot of people don't use methods other than lecture is when you prepare for a lecture, you pretty much know exactly what's going to happen. You, you know what you're going to say, what you're going to cover. Uh, you're really in control as the instructor. And it can be a disorienting dilemma, you might say, for the instructor, especially the first few times, to uh, do an interactive session like this because you never really know what's going to happen and uh, what people are going to say. And some of these techniques, the instructor has almost no control. It's basically run by the students, which we'll talk about. So you have to have uh, some flexibility and be able to go a little with the flow, which is important in most situations. Flexibility is the key to most things in life and certainly to missions. And uh, teaching is just another area. Uh, you can use it to uh, develop concepts and principles. The questions you ask can lead people down a pathway you're trying to cause them to group with or it can uh, lead them away. And if you really think about the questions that are asked by, uh, say, secular humanists and things, they're designed to lead you to their conclusion. And uh, we need to be wise as serpents, I think, and uh, innocent as doves, but be able to use this in cross-cultural situations. Because uh, even if you're in a culture where people don't like to answer out loud, you can just say, think about this question, and you can use it. And you can also use it to... Uh, summarize things that are wide. Like we could have taken the whole hour and talked about why Jesus used questions. I really like this quote from Philip Johnson. You may know him. He uh, does a lot on the evolution controversy. But the last part of this, I, I think, is the most important, that the important thing is asking the right questions, not just coming up with any old question, but uh, trying to use it to direct the uh, conversation and uh, especially if you're teaching something like medical ethics to lead them to challenge their presuppositions and think about why is it ethical or is it ethical and uh, how should we change if we need to. And we also address this a little bit. I, I like this quote too, uh, the idea of the surreptitious role of questions, that you can't not be affected by a question. So the question alone kind of creates a, an interaction and a disorienting uh, dilemma. And it may come back to them in the middle of the night. They may not react while you're there, but after you leave, they may still be thinking about it, and it can have a long-term effect. Uh, now I'd like to talk about the specific interactive learning methods. Um, we talked a little about guided discussion, and actually you're experiencing guided discussion right now, and we'll talk about each of the other ones briefly. I just want to expose you to them. And there are other ones like uh, we heard about with the iPod. That was one I wasn't familiar with. And I could see that would be very popular. That sounds like a, a TV game show, you know, where you try to get the right answer the audience says, you know, <laughs> and uh, see, w see where people are. But I didn't have that one. Guided kind of discussion is pretty much what we're doing here. It's really controlled by the instructor to a large extent because the uh, instructor thinks about the objectives they want to accomplish and asks questions. You can do it in many ways. You can have the whole group participate as a large group, which we did a little bit. You can do what we call think, pair, share, which is good for very large classes, where instead of having groups of five or so, you just have people pair up, and it doesn't take as long to have the discussion. And you can have interaction even if it is a large class. A lot of people don't think they can. And uh, you can uh, get to the different learning objectives. All of these uh, have a lot of similar uh, 
benefits, but they all make people uh, use what's called critical thinking uh, to really examine things, not just what's often called the banking method where you, uh, you know, you withdraw information from the instructor brain and put it in the bank of the student's brain, but it causes people to uh, have to pass it through filters in their mind and cope with it and think about it rather than just take it at the instructor's, uh, the instructor's teaching. And it can also help groups learn how to work together. And as you've heard probably in some of the other sessions, one of the biggest problems on the mission field is getting along with the other missionaries. It's just reality. Wherever you work, it's getting along with the people you're working closest to. And it can help you learn how to uh, interact in, in ways with very different opinions. I was in a, a health policy class uh, where they taught by the Socratic method, and we had people from the far right to the far left, and we'd be doing these case studies, what should you do? And it forced uh, people on the opposite sides, unlike Washington, to you know, learn how to react to each other in nice ways and come out with practical solutions rather than just hit heads together. Uh, and also it gives people a chance to evaluate others' ideas if you just... Uh, Hearing a lecture, you just get one view of things, where here we've heard a number of different uh, inputs. You may agree with some, you may not, and it's a, a good chance to use your mind to do that. And then we talked about behavior changes, people think with them. And it's particularly good when you're doing, uh, talking about things that are more complex. You know, if you're talking about the Krebs cycle, there's not a lot you can really discuss on that. But, uh, you know, if you're talking about... Uh, physician-assisted suicide or right of conscience or even other medical things, cases. You know, I thought when I went to medical school, they'd say, you know, get disease A, give drug B, get result C. And you all know it's much more an art than a science. There's often a, a variety of choices for therapy and can give you a chance to uh, look at a much broader view of things. And uh, particularly where it's controversial, it can be good. And you can use it in bigger groups, but they use it more in the smaller groups. And if you're in medical or dental school, you're probably in some small groups like that. Problem-based learning differs from guided discussion because it's largely uncontrolled by the instructor. Uh, the instructor isn't even called an instructor or teacher. They're called a tutor. And they're really there just to be sure things stay on track and to introduce the subject. Sometimes they'll give a little bit of an introductory lecture, but they introduce the problem, and the students in the group form, uh, they pick somebody to be in charge, somebody to be sort of the scribe, and then the rest of the group uh, interacts, and they rotate that around as they do the problem. So it teaches people to take leadership, to uh, be able to record discussions, uh, complex ideas, and uh, it causes the students to have to think about where do we start? Okay, we got this problem, an asthmatic uh, child in an inner city area with little health care. So um, if you're just starting in medical school, you have to, what kind of questions might you come up with if you're in that group? You're going to have to learn uh, how to cope with this situation. Any ideas? Is the child with asthma? Okay, is it asthma? They have some kind of bronchospasm. So what's causing the, the symptoms? That's one question. Anything else? What kind of previous treatment? Okay. Are they on any treatment? And what is it? Okay. Are they in the hospital? Have they been hospitalized for it? 
Okay, all the general history questions, of course. Okay, do they have allergies? Pets, good. Okay, yeah, those are all general medical history questions. Beyond just medical history questions, what other things might you ask? Okay, if they're having uh, signs of uh, coughing up things or fever, chills. How severe is this? Okay, how severe? How does the socioeconomic standpoint of the child affect um, maybe the presentation and Okay, yeah, that there are uh, things you might want to look into is how does the living situation and environment impact these, cause these kinds of things. Yes. Is there like anything in particular that's maybe causing or triggering attacks? Okay, good, yeah. That, what kinds of situations does it occur in? And then you can think about why is that triggering it. Yes. Will the caregivers or parents be able to adhere to the recommended regime? Yeah, and certainly things like transplants, that's a very important thing. Can the caretakers uh, adhere to the regime? So what they do is they kind of brainstorm like that with the student leading the group and somebody's writing all these questions down, and then they parcel it out. Uh, they're going to meet, say, two hours a week. So before the next week, each person in the group will go research one of those questions. And so it forces them to learn how to use the literature, how to... Uh, deal with uh, an unknown situation and find answers, which happens to us all the time in medicine. There are always things that come up that you haven't seen before or it's a variation on things. And so it's a student-controlled method that forces them to cope with the problems and learn how to, uh, how to find answers themselves. And this was pioneered actually in medicine at McMaster University in Canada. And some schools use this exclusively. They don't have basic science classes like y'all have. They'll just have a problem. And through that, they have to learn, well, what's the physiology of this? What's the anatomy of this? What's the pharmacology? And they do their whole teaching through it. So uh, start with a problem situation. The group forms the questions and the learning tasks that come back and synthesize it and integrate it and uh, share what information they have. And the tutor's really there just to be sure they don't learn, mislearn things, learn wrong things, and keep on track. It used to be thought that you didn't need an expert tutor, that any physician could do it, just like sort of teaching physical diagnosis. But now they're going more to uh, it's better to have somebody who really knows that topic to know the information. We talked about case studies. Anybody who's never been in a case study? So you all know what that's about. And it's really just, it's similar to problem-based learning, although uh, it can differ because you may not uh, have the students running it. You may be dealing with a real case, a person on the wards, and uh, deal with their medical condition. But it's much more realistic. It makes people think about the situation in the way they'd have to deal with it. And um, we talked about, you know, it makes them prepare uh, if they know they're going to have to interact, they're less likely to come and not have done their reading or preparation or looked at the lab values or whatever it is. And, and uh, I think we, most of the rest of these are, are pretty similar. They're all related to interactive learning tasks. It, it can be, all these can be a problem if you have immature students who are just going to laugh and fool around. Uh, we don't usually get that in medical and dental school, but if you teach at you know, lower levels of teaching young kids in Sunday school or teenagers or uh, adolescents, it may be more of a problem. Then demonstration performance. Uh, if How many of you have taken ATLS or ACLS? 
Okay, so a lot of people, that's, I think, a really good example of it. There are a lot of things that you might have a lecture on uh, how to do it, but until you've done it, you can read about swimming all day, but if you never tried to swim, you're not a good swimmer. And just like, uh, you know, if you're going to put in a chest tube and you read about the steps, but you've never done it, uh, it's a problem. And we have great simulators now at a lot of schools. A lot of countries don't have this, but you can do it. Uh, on animals in some countries and that sort of thing. And um, it can be very effective because you're using multiple senses. Somebody brought that up here. You're, uh, you know, you're not only getting it intellectually, but you're doing it physically. You're thinking about it. What are the steps? You're practicing it and proving your technique. So it incorporates a lot of things in it. One thing I like about it is it gets that coaching part of medicine in. Usually you have somebody who's coaching you and then as they become proficient, they can coach their peers, so it makes it a lot more fun. Uh, planning the lesson uh, is basically like other ones as far as, you know, you want to think about what you want to teach. In uh, these kind of lessons, you do have to think about safety a lot of times if you're going to be using uh, scalpels or uh, things that may cause hazards. It's good to have a safety briefing. Uh, explain what you want people to do uh, and then have them do it and have their peers critique it and you critique it. And it's a good way to learn to teach. If you want to be a better teacher, a good way to do it is to teach a lesson and have a group critique you. Uh, I went to a class where uh, they would teach us a technique like this, and then they would give a demonstration. Then we'd each have to do it, and the small group would criticize us, or not criticize us, give us positive feedback. feedback. And uh, then... Uh, the instructor would give us feedback, and then they actually videotaped us, and you had to go watch yourself. And it's very instructive. I, I remember uh, someone was saying to one of the students, you're always scratching your nose when you're talking. And they're like, I don't do that. And they went and watched their videotape and came back, you know, and they're like, oh, I guess I do. So have uh, tape yourself, too. But, uh, you know, if you have little groups that you want to practice teaching with each other, feedback is great, and there's nothing like seeing yourself to uh, get a better view of what you're doing and how you come across and improve your technique. Guided interview is one we don't seem to use a lot in medicine, but uh, I have seen it used, for example, um, when I was a first-year medical student, we didn't know very much about uh, diseases or anything, but... A neurologist brought in a person with advanced Parkinson's disease and had the patient talk about, you know, what did they notice that made them know something was wrong? What was it like for them to know it was a progressive condition? How did they feel uh, when they were treated by the medical people? You know, were they, you know, treated personally or just like a number? And uh, a lot of those can be really instructive. Or if it's a situation that is unusual, I used to, I was in the military for. 26 years, and um, we used to teach uh, our residents about prisoners of war and their issues and how to deal with it. And we'd have people who had really been prisoners of war come in and talk about their experience and uh, be open to letting the students question them. And uh, you can learn a lot from experts in areas you hope you're not going to have to deal with but uh, might come up. And now, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder or something, it would be really good for that. And you see this on TV all the time on 2020 and all those shows. So it's particularly good to use when you're trying to get somebody's personal experience or attitude uh, and to supplement your own knowledge. Uh, I wanted to leave a little time. That's basically uh, 
what I wanted to talk about to, to make a couple basic points that, you know, lecture alone is not desirable. There are lots of ways to do interactive teaching methods. Jesus, our model, used it a lot for all those reasons we talked about and more and encourage you to think about using interactive methods more if you do teaching. Uh, so, since a lot of you are teachers, though, I'd like to have you all uh, share anything that you've been doing we haven't covered or other ideas or, uh, you know, just like you had shared about the iPod model. Any other things? We can learn a lot from the people who have used a lot of techniques. Yes, Jim. I wanted to share one, um, a recent example. Um, we had a family... Responding whenever the child got sick, then they would come in. All right, and, and I was trying to find a way to uh, teach them. You notice the child's name was Danica. So I said, uh, "How many Danicas do you know?" I said, "Well, there's just one." Right? And I says, "Well, what does that person do?" He says, "Well, she's a race car driver." And I says, "So do you pull into a pit stop when you're in trouble or to prevent problems?" And and, and then the light went on. She said, "Oh, that's what asthma." some way to do that, that interactive thing by just finding out what they believe, what their background is, what they value or something, um, to me makes it just, uh, continually makes it happen. Yeah, that's an excellent point. You know, we forget a lot of times what it felt like our first year in medical school and we didn't know what anybody was talking about. And it can be hard for us sometimes to talk in terms that the patients really can identify with. And if you can think of metaphors, Jesus used quite a few metaphors too, you know, uh, the seeds falling on the path and on the rocks and different ones and uh, trying to think of ways we can get them to relate to what we're trying to get them to do. And prevention is so important, but it's hard to get people to prevent, to uh, appreciate it a lot of times. But so many people are into, I was amazed when I heard NASCAR was the number one spectator sport, but, you know, lots of people are into that. Whatever the culture is, where you are, I'm from San Antonio, it's a very different, it's largely Hispanic culture, so it has kind of different uh, metaphors if you're in race car land and the southeast is very big, or, you know, if you're in northern cities, different issues about that. Uh, yes, go ahead. That's oh, okay, you can just share with us. Yeah, and you can identify with your peers, so you may laugh a little, but you're like, oh, I would feel uncomfortable doing that. So, yeah, that's a good way to engage people. Go ahead. So you have some that have already had children and some that haven't. And, and that's called facilitated, facilitated learning, where you bring people together who uh, all have the same issue like pregnancy, but some have been through it before and uh, teach each other. Yeah, teaching is so important, and we don't have time to do it one-on-one -on -one most of the time. So as much as we can do to get groups together and uh, help each other is great. 
challenges we have when we're going to a different environment and all those kind of resources that we're used to using in our community are not available. They, are, they don't have things to even to write. So they're learning everything by rote, you know. <coughs> anyway, that's a whole different teaching kind of approach. We don't have the resources. And I was thinking maybe you would talk about Okay. Yeah, the question's about what do we do when we're places that don't have the resources we have here. Um, we mainly do, the group I work with does mainly medical and dental teaching at medical schools and residencies and things. And you'd be surprised at what people have. I haven't been anywhere yet, including Mongolia and uh, Indonesia and, uh, you know, a lot of uh, places you wouldn't think would have a lot of resources that didn't have PowerPoint, for example. Uh, in Central Asia, I've been places that have... Uh, Headsets for everybody for translation. I mean, it's amazing what people have now because there's a lot of international interaction. But I was also talking to uh, a physician that's done a lot of teaching through missions and overseas. And uh, or no, actually, it was uh, my professor. I have now. He used to be uh, the head of Sudan Interior Missioner. Now it's called something else, S-I-M anyway, and uh, he was talking about he always used a whiteboard or something like that. He always tried to use a technique that didn't depend on electricity, special equipment, so that one thing we want to do is not create dependency. We try very hard not to do that in our group, so we don't use anything they don't have. Most places seem to have it these days, but um, if you can find out in advance what the situation is, what they do and don't have, and try not to introduce new things. So, of course, you can bring a PowerPoint projector, but then when you leave, they don't have that. So um, that's one thing we try not to do. And uh, you can usually bring either uh, charts, you know, roll up uh, those flip charts, or you can bring a whiteboard or something along as a backup. Um, you can... You know, most we're, if you're teaching, like, community health, you can even draw in the dirt and things. Usually when we're teaching at a medical school, they have basic, you know, some kind of basic blackboards or whiteboards or something like that. You can use some, some still use overhead projectors or, you know, uh, things probably some of you are too young to remember. But uh, somebody was talking about mimeographs the other day, and <laughs> that was, like, elementary school for me, yeah. culture where you do not talk back to the teacher. It's lecture, lecture all the time, and it's disrespectful to talk to the teacher, so I sit there and ask some questions. Dead silence. I mean, you're like, you know, 50 people, and they, nobody would respond back to you. So I think, like, they really identified more with, um, I don't know, the entertainment and watching stuff, like videos that you bring into your lectures, or even, like, they had the Chinese residents, like, do the... Um, you know, a volunteer from the audience, and they did little skits. And they, they were so into that, and they thought that was hilarious. They do these little entertaining skits for everybody. Yeah, that's a good point. There, You know, a lot of the cultures of the world are uh, have a high culture distance between students and teachers, and uh, there's not much re interaction professionally or on the side. Uh, it's very formal. If you ask a professor a question... It has several possibilities of being bad. It could cause the instructor to lose face if they don't know the answer. It can imply they weren't clear to start, which is kind of an insult to the professor. Or it could say that you're, you're not well prepared because you don't know the answer. 
And so that is a real issue. And a lot of countries, if you start with what we're doing today, uh, they think you're not very knowledgeable because if you knew, you'd tell everyone instead of ask questions. So in those kinds of cultures, what happens um, a lot of times is if you start with their method to uh, sort of demonstrate competency, you know, give a couple lectures, and then say, you know, I'd like to try something new, give you an idea of some things that other places do. We try not to say that Americans do or, you know, be a cultural imperialist in that sense, but just say this is getting more common. And it's true in most countries of the world to use these methods. And uh, in, in those places, you might start with a peer-to-peer method or problem-based learning or something where it's not necessarily interacting face-to-face with the professor. But I've also found young people are very flexible, and it's usually the older faculty who, who don't want to interact. Yes? Yeah, I think that's really critical. You always want to examine your audience, whether it's patients or you're teaching medical students or faculty. You don't want to talk down to people. You may have some very educated patients, but you may have some that just don't know much about health in the body. And uh, Okay, well, I don't want to keep you over, but I'll be glad to uh, stay after if anybody wants to talk. Thank you all for coming so late in the conference. <laughs>